so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In this episode of Weekly Tech, I'm joined by Drs. James Davidson Hunter and Paul Nedletsky, both professors at the University of Virginia, and we talk about the nature of science and morality based on their book, The Science and the Good, The Tragic Quest for the Foundation of Morality from Yale University Press. Dr. James Davidson Hunter is a Distinguished Professor of Religion, Cultural, and Social Theory at the University of Virginia and also serves as the Director of the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. He's the author of Culture Wars as well as The Death of Character. Dr. Paul Nedletsky is the Assistant Director and Fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. His research interests center on issues of metaphysics and ethics. Nedleski received a PhD in philosophy from the University of Virginia in 2013. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Hunter and Dr. Nedleski, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can each of you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up writing this Science and the Good book together? Sure. Why don't I jump in first? Um, I'm a historical and cultural sociologist, and um, I'm interested in understanding some of the really complicated changes that are are taking place in our world today. Uh, I think most Americans, people of faith, um, most people in the world in general, uh, find the, uh, the pace and complexity of change that's taking place in our world today utterly mystifying. And part of what I have done over the course of my career is to try to make sense of that. And um, uh, so... I do this in my own work, and uh, years ago I founded the Institute for Advanced Study in Culture um, at the University of Virginia, and uh, Paul is my colleague there, and um, we looked at each other and said, let's, let's combine our, our interests and our, our different backgrounds and uh, address something that is, is, is just profoundly important and getting a lot of attention, but needs to be demystified. Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, my background is in philosophy. I did a PhD in analytic metaphysics uh, here at the University of Virginia. And during that time, got to know James uh, at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture. And my attraction to this, this project was a, a little more narrow. You know, as a metaphysician, I think a lot about 
what, you know, what is the nature of reality, and especially in these fundamental categories like, you know, what is good and uh, what is evil and what is right and what is wrong. And I was coming across these books and articles where people were saying, um, well, we can tell you how to live, what's good and bad, right and wrong, uh, through science. And as a mention, I kept thinking, this is impossible. The, you know, good and bad, it's, they're not the sorts of things that you could know about through science. And, and um, when I started talking to James and James reached out and uh, with a, an opportunity to collaborate, you know, he's able to give the social and historical significance to a project that I knew was worthwhile, but he re- really was able to put teeth in, in our efforts to address this question in a way that for me had just been sort of something that was unsettling, but I couldn't, I don't think I could have explained why it was so potentially pernicious. And from my vantage point, uh, Paul could bring uh, philosophical sophistication to the um, the issue that um, I just didn't have uh, access to in my background. So it was an, a, a wonderful uh, collaboration, a real joy to tackle this together. And and uh, the book Science and the Good, the tragic quest for the foundations of morality is the result. Yeah. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is um, I read it for a doctoral seminar last fall, actually, and really benefited from it. Because for me, even though it was published under an academic press, it's also very accessible. I think you do both do a really good job walking through the concepts, explaining, kind of putting this in, a, as you guys said, a, a historical perspective and helping us to understand some of the modern challenges, not only to faith, uh, but even to very kind of modern ethical systems and a lot of the questions that are being asked in light of uh, modern technologies. In the book, you all argue uh, that the pursuit of what's called the new moral science that we see today in figures like Patricia Churchland, Sam Harris, Jonathan Haidt, and others is actually a centuries-long failed quest uh, to discover a scientific foundation for morality. Can you give a little bit of background or historical insight into this quest and what brought it about? Yeah, I think this is a question that emerged um, uh, roughly in the 16th century, Um at a time when, during the the great uh, religious wars between Protestants and Catholics in in Europe, there were competing religious claims about what is the nature of truth, what is the nature of the good, what is truly moral, and Protestants and Catholics uh, not only could not agree, but they fought um, promiscuously bloody wars uh, over over their differences. And so the backdrop for this question was really humanistic. It was an attempt by uh, people who believed that understanding the true nature of morality, what was truly good, what was truly right, um, of how to form uh, a truly good society, uh, we needed an, an answer to that. And Protestantism and Catholicism each had their own perspectives. They were fighting each other over it. Maybe science could provide uh, an impartial answer to that question. And this, of course, is at the start of uh, the great scientific revolution. So science emerged, the question emerged around the dilemmas of how to form and reform a truly good society. And since religion wasn't answering that question in any other way than 
than sectarian and, con- and, and contentious, science presented itself, or it was thought that science could offer uh, a neutral, impartial way to address that question. Yeah, and picking up the thread there, um, the quest continued on. There, there was not an immediate discovery by you know during the scientific revolution that that solved these problems. You know that was the hope. Science had been making these great strides in a lot of areas and um, telling us things we didn't know about the world prior to that. And so, uh, wouldn't it be great if it could do the same for these you know, tough moral and, and oftentimes political questions? So, over the next three hundred years, uh, a number of different theorists took a shot at this project. You know, somebody would try. You know, one of the first was Hugo Grotius, a, a natural law theorist, and he said, "Oh, I think you know, I think I can give a scientific account." of international law. He, he gave it his best shot, but um, it was too, it was still too thoroughly moral and ethical. It, it would involve things that he thought were empirical, but, you know, as it turned out, others disagreed with him and he wasn't able to point to anything in nature in some kind of demonstrative way to, to clear up the disagreement. But, um, you know, after him, John Locke made another attempt kind of coming at it from another angle. After Locke, 100 years or so, you had the utilitarians, uh, in England, Bentham and Mill, and um, on through the 19th century with with Darwin. Darwin, you know, providing more of an empirical account of how human beings could have developed our our ethical sensibilities. You know, giving some sort of story that people he thought people could accept in a broad way about how mm-hmm. how we might be able to know about right and wrong. But what was happening over this long progression is that what ethics and morality were understood to be was slowly changing. In the early part of the 20th century, for a variety of sociological reasons in the academy and also due to some philosophical criticisms, people stopped with the project briefly. But the the standard was picked up again late 20th century, and the ethics of morality returned with the the sociobiologists. What was not noticed and I, I would say not notice even by James and myself until we sort of got into the research here, is that this project, which, which looked very similar uh, to this longstanding 400-year quest to find some objective way of helping everybody get along, um, it had changed because even though the church lens, Sam Harris, um, Stephen Pinker, Owen Flanagan, these other folks working in the last 20 and 30 years, even though they're using the same terms, good and bad, here's what science tells us about good and bad, they were actually talking about a different thing. They had finally fully embraced this kind of decline or waning of ethical concepts, and finally there was nothing left. They, didn't, they don't really think there's good or, good or bad or right or wrong. The entire universe has to be the sort of thing that you could build up out of little physical particles, and that doesn't work for ethics, for moral property, so um, there is no such thing. But, and I know this is getting long, but here's the last little piece. They recognize humans still have to do things. We have to, we have, we face practical problems. We have to come to decisions as communities, as societies. Um, how should we do that? On what basis? So they continue to use the language of, well, we should do this or we should do that. And they appeal to science to answer these questions. But what's happening at this stage isn't using science to look at the world and see the good making properties or somehow detecting rights and duties. It's, it's saying, well, assuming that, our, that what we want for our society is correct, how can science and technology help us get those things? And that's really what's happening now um, when these people talk about a science of morality. The question of 
can science be the foundation of morality has waxed and waned o- over the last 400 years. And, and, and as Paul said, it waned in the early part of the 20th century and only sort of reemerged in, um, in the post-World War II period uh, with the rise of virtue ethics. And uh, these questions started to be uh, raised again. But then really at the end of the at the very end of the 20th century and in the turn into the 21st, we see this flurry of activity uh, from the people that Paul mentioned, the Owen Flanagans and the Steven Pinkers and Patricia Churchland and so on, just and, and all writing very authoritative treatises about the science of this and the science uh, of, of that, bearing on ethical questions. And in my field, uh, sociology, I make the case that the, the, that the central questions of of our field is why here and why now? And and the answer to that question, I think in in broad brushstrokes is that we are living in a time in which uh, religion is reemerging. Of course, it it, it never left, but with the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, uh, the persistence of, of Christianity and the kinds of claims that are made by different religions around the world uh, people are scared to death of, of that, and especially um, uh, in the academic world. And yet the academic world is, it is both, it's a kind of religious and ethical wasteland. I mean, what we, we, we are living in the moment of a, of, of a technological and technocratic epoch that doesn't have an ethics. And so the science of morality emerges as an effort to fill that void that is not religious in nature. And so because they've essentially deconstructed ethics as such, morality as such, they use the language of Aristotle, but what they're really offering is Bentham and Mill. They talk about flourishing, but they're really talking about utility. That was a concept that was really hit. It came home to me reading kind of a popular book, uh, you all know Harari's Homo Deus, uh, which is his brief history of tomorrow, where he gets into a lot of that about the nature of religion and how religion used to be able to explain a lot of these phenomena. But now we've kind of woken up, we've been enlightened, uh, we understand why things happen the way they do, and so we don't need religion. You even see this in um, Neil Postman's really popular work, Technopoly, where he kind of goes through a technological Uh, understanding historical look at these big shifts that we've already been talking about as he categorizes that we're now in a technopoly. Um, And so I think those those are some really important concepts. And I I really appreciate what you said, Dr. Hunter, that we're kind of in a moral wasteland in some sense, um, is that we later on, and I don't want to jump too far ahead in uh, in our talk, but you get to the point where you're talking about moral nihilism um, is really what's driving the day. But I know early on, um, you note importantly that the nature, there's kind of a popular misconception that the nature of science is settled. I think often we hear things like that, especially in pop culture. Well, the science is settled. Um, this is, it's done, it's over, just accept it and move on. Can you all give some insight about into the current debates, even over the nature of science? And one of the things that I found really helpful that I'd really love for you to explain for listeners is the tiered system, the level one, two, and three uh, moral claims uh, that you see in kind of this, um, the nature of morality and ethics. Yeah, so, yeah, in terms of the the unsettled nature of science, I don't have a ton to say about that. I mean, I as I recall, part of what 
I th- in my opinion, made the book difficult to write is that there's so much confusion about what a science of morality is and what it would hope to show. We put the tiered system in place to try to resolve some of that unclarity. And what we went with is saying, well, let's, let's take, say there are three levels, three levels of results that a scientific study of morality could, could give us. Level one, that's the gold standard. That would be some kind of demonstrative, empirical, tangible proof, or at least evidence that, you know, if something or other is right or wrong, that this or that is good or bad, that could tell us something that directly impinges on how we might, how we ought to live. Level two, backing off from that a little bit, um, but still connecting with, with the realm of ethics, would be evidence from science that, that helps us decide uh, which theory of morality is right or wrong. So maybe it's not some kind of proof or, or demonstration that um, it's good to love your spouse or your neighbor or something, but it might say, you know, maybe there could be some kind of experiment that showed us that virtue ethics was, was false. You know, that, that would be an example of a level two result, if, if that could be achieved. Level three is the weakest level. And this results in the level three category are results that say, uh, that show us, well, look, here's something true that we discovered through science about, uh, about morality or about ethics or about human cognition uh, on ethical questions. And so in pretty clearly, there are a lot of good empirical results here. You, you, they put people in in uh, brain scanners and ask them moral questions. And we find out that with certain kinds of questions, certain, you know, the, the um, neural correlates of thought happen in different places, you know, things like this. We're learning information that's connected in some way to moral issues, but none of that uh, can really tell us or can, it can't tell us what's good or bad, right or wrong. Does it impinge on practical questions about how to live? Well, let, let me just add a, a little bit to that, that, Part of the reason we deconstructed um, or at least posed questions about the nature of science itself and tried to articulate different understandings of what a scientific science of morality would look like, what kind of findings it it, it could, could achieve, was to, again, to demystify something that is often presented as much more certain much more authoritative uh, than it actually is. At the end of the day, science is a method, and it's a useful method. And Paul and I are very pro-science, but we also are pro-science in, in, in the sense that we believe it is a useful method. It is not authoritative for saying all things. And in fact, um, the methods themselves have to be interrogated. And and. and that task of interrogating the nature of science itself, but also the science of morality, is set against the backdrop of statements by some very famous public intellectuals in America who are speaking with great authority about what science tells us about how we should live or what's right and wrong and so on. So, I know early on, you mentioned earlier in your interview, but also you get to it in the book, is how a lot of the moral scientists have ultimately substituted moral goodness uh, for what's useful. While they're still using the language of morality, uh, you argue that this kind of ultimately is embracing moral nihilism. Can you expand on that shift in language and why you think this ultimately leads to a moral nihilism in society? I think that the the transition um, 
happens more in the other direction. Uh, you know, I, my sense is that there was a change in what a prevalent or there's a there was a change in what a lot of academics thought about the way the world is. And you know, I, I do want to emphasize: I don't think there's any sort of sinister project by you know, these people we call the new moral scientists to trick the public. You know, when when you interact with them, they you get the feeling that they usually only you know converse and talk to other people who have the same beliefs they do most of the time. So they're what you know their beliefs do, do not seem remarkable to them. You know, being moral nihilists, but th- but I think that's the that's what comes first, sort of in the order of explanation. There was a a shift in how a lot of scientists and, and people who worked in both philosophy and science, whether it be psychology or, or biology, there's a shift in their basic understanding of the world at a metaphysical level. And so uh, the older traditional ways of understanding ethics and morality no longer made sense, but they, their, their thinking would be, well, we still have to talk about what we should do. And the words, you know, should and ought and good and bad are as good as any other. So of course we should keep using the same, the same words. But, uh, you know, for people like myself who, <laughs> you know, still persist in thinking there is, you know, genuine good and bad, you know, things you should and shouldn't do, things that are worthwhile in an objective sense, independent of what anybody thinks, you know, this sort of stuff, they're talking about something totally different. And so I think it, something that we could do in our book that is helpful is just making very clear that while the words have, have remained the same, their meanings have changed. And for this new spate of uh, scientific approaches to morality, it looks like a continuation of this centuries-old project, but it's not clear, or maybe more strongly, it is not the same project. They no longer are, I think, are really putting a lot of stock in the idea that science could resolve our deep moral disagreements. You do see that some, but more, I would say more often what you see is a desire to, to move um, past discussion of moral issues and just quote unquote solve these problems through you know scientific technical assessments. Um, we know that society wants X and such. So how can the empirical understanding of the world give us the levers and pulleys to to bring this about? It becomes very well, pragmatic. Let me just highlight this point that the folks who are writing these books and who are uh, advocating for a science of morality uh, would never call themselves moral nihilists. They that's really our conclusion when, um, after reading carefully into their footnotes, into the texts, where they essentially say there is no Archimedean point. There is no moral um, foundation. That ethics, at the end of the day, uh, is entirely relative. There's just no there there. That they end up with moral nihilism is a conclusion, it's the only conclusion you can draw when you read the fine print. You know, one of the most famous um, uh, players in this space simply argues that the good and the true is what the current social consensus tells us it is. That arbitrary, the arbitrary quality of that, of that statement tells us that he doesn't believe that there is anything there, that there are no uh, moral foundations. I think as we continue to pursue ethics and morality, especially as we have a lot of pressing questions surrounding the development of technology and artificial intelligence, which is one of the areas that I've done a lot of research in, 
um, you start to notice that it's hard to draw a kind of societal-wide consensus on what is good or what is bad. And I think you're starting to see that. And you guys pick that up in the book so well. And I think it really does help to open up um, and to understand where other people are coming from, the perspectives and the philosophies that they're working from. I wanted to ask you how you guys uh, see this affecting kind of this the new science of morality and the debate surrounding what is good in our society, how we see this playing out in our public discourse or even in our societies, we're pursuing uh, these innovations, but at the same time, we're having such difficult ethical and kind of thorny ethical questions that we're having to answer. How do you see that playing out in our public discourse in our society today? Huh. Well, um, in the early 1990s, uh, I wrote a book called Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America, um, that introduced that concept to our public discourse. And I would say that that, that book addresses that question. Um, how does it play out? It plays out conflictually. The conflict over abortion, over sexuality, over church and state issues, over Supreme Court justices, over immigration policy, over uh, issues of, of, of racial equity and justice. You name the issue and it is contested. And it is contested precisely because we not only don't share a common moral vocabulary, but we also don't share a method by which we could achieve any kind of moral consensus. So how does this play out? It, it plays out in a culture war. Well, I know that as we've we've covered a lot of ground, I know some listeners, this might be a brand new thing for them. Uh, for others, this might be something that they kind of already been waters that they've been waiting in for a while. Um, but as we've uh, as we end our time together today, I wanted to ask, what are maybe a couple books or resources that you might point listeners to if they wanted to go a little bit deeper? Obviously, Dr. Hunter, we want to uh, we'll make sure to link to your book. Um, on the culture wars and kind of a lot of those type of things. But is there other books or resources that you would recommend to listeners to pick up if they wanted to dive a little bit deeper? Yeah, apart from our book, there's a there's a book by the philosopher uh, Kwame Appiah called Experiments in Ethics. That's um, it's, it's, it's a little more narrowly focused within the philosophical debates. He looks at some psychology issues in psychology, but he's mostly interacting with other philosophers. But it's beautifully written. It's very intelligible. But... Um, Zooming out a little bit, I think a great thing to look at if, you're, if someone's curious, a book by one of these new moral scientists that we talk about in Science and the Good named uh, Alex Rosenberg. He has, a book, he has a book called The Atheist's Guide to Reality. And uh, there he, he basically draws the logical conclusion of the background metaphysical view that the new moral scientists have. You know, what some people call philosophical naturalism, that everything in reality can be built up out of little little physical pieces. But he, you know, he says, this, this is how the world is, and here are the implications. There's no self. There's no consciousness. There's no rationality. There's no morality. You can't really do history because there's no such thing as meaning or narrative. And he just ruthlessly goes through all the implications in an attempt to make a positive argument for it. But I think he's so clear that uh, it also makes a great counterargument because you realize how much you have to give up to, to go in for that sort of that sort of overall view, viewpoint. Um, so it's worth looking at. 
Well, I wanted to thank you both for this really fascinating conversation. I think for listeners, it's going to be kind of eye-opening in many ways, because I do think that often kind of there are popular conceptions that the science is settled, and obviously we can find morality uh, from our science, our scientific pursuits. But I, I really appreciated the work that you guys put into this book. I think it's really very helpful, and I definitely encourage listeners to grab a copy of it. Um, but I just wanted to thank you both for taking time out of your schedules to join us today and uh, here on Weekly Tech. I'm really grateful for this book and the opportunity to be able to meet with you both. Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much. From all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can connect with both Dr. Hunter and Dr. Nedleski and learn more about their work in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech newsletter at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech which is an email briefing designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the top tech news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. If you enjoy weekly tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about weekly tech with others. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.